second death has no power, for they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity to gather before you in Christian fellowship this morning to uh, worship you and pray to you in your holy name. Lord, we pray for your inspiration. Well, it is as has been read for you. Um, this morning that we come to Revelation 20, as we've been working our way across the book of Revelation, uh, as we come to these six verses that were just read for you, you know as well as I know, there is no more six verses that have been more hotly, interactive, I guess, or ever, um, <laughs> that have been wrangled over in all of the book of Revelation. It's pretty close to all the verses of the Bible than these six verses. So it is that I come that these verses being debated if we look at church history for just under the point with which we are about to engage in our conversation this morning, just under two millennia. These verses have been wrestled with, wrangled over, and the individuals charged with various types of heresy and coordination with how they have and have not responded to these six. So with that level of excitement, we will begin, I trust I'm on the side of deep-seated orthodoxy. But at that same time, this is, if you know that old riddle or the legend of the Gordian knot, we are approaching it. Where it is this knot, whereby whoever can figure out the deep magical mystery of the knot, they have the power of the kingdom. They can figure out the knot. They can figure out how it was tied, what is the trick. What is the logic? They will have around the kingdom. So the story goes, and as the Lord is not standing before us, I don't really know how it's tied. I'm not about to really unravel it in such a manner that you will stand astounded and amazed, and it will be the final comment you'll ever want to on these six verses. <laughs> I stand on all lineage of much more brilliant men than myself that uh, they, neither could they untie the not. Yet I can, I trust by grace, offer you and myself together a sense of confidence to way forward through this difficult fence. Something of immediate power, benefit, and encouragement as it is our goal each time we can to be transformed from one degree to another degree of glory as we wait for this return of war. And by faith and our time together, I trust this step is the truth. That can we can with confidence put forward in some sense of in this text together. I would like to do so. We'll scratch this text two weeks in a row. I found it to be here for another century. But we won't be. We won't be still attending the Demon three years from now. Someone asked, what is the preaching ministry of the Demon thing right now? And say, we're on Revelation 21, 23. We've been there for three years. What we only need there, we restrict ourselves to two weeks instead of three or four years. And we'll do so by plotting a course this morning through an affirmation, a corresponding denial. That is, if we affirm this, we deny that. And then I would like to lay out for you a pursuit and a way forward in light of our affirmation and denial. The affirmation I will read for you this is my affirmation to you. I trust you join with me in this shared affirmation. And a great way forward. I read for you an affirmation. The essential and concrete aspects of this text. Okay? You're with me so far. I look at everyone's eyes and I just keep reading it. And I just want to make sure you're looking at me and I can do it again. Again, okay, good. Positively good. Okay. The essential and concrete aspects of this text may not be spiritualized out of existence. And we'll just do a deep breath. Okay, good, 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 good. So we're not about to do something magical. 
something that will just somehow take this difficulty and know acknowledging it as a Gordian knot and then throw it under the rug with some sort of neat, mystical way of handling the text. So far, through the book of Revelation, somewhat, this pastor, I hope, has demonstrated some measure of concrete handling of each text. Not trying to avoid one and lay hold of another and overshadow things and dodge bullets. But that we would, with great confidence, walk forward. As we have, to this point, I trust you, walked forward, step by step. So this morning, we will do the same. The essential and concrete aspects of this text may not be spiritualized out of existence. The martyred and the enthroned saints, I affirm to you and you with me that they are real. The angel who binds Satan that you have heard read already by here this morning, he also is real. Satan is real. The saints are real. The wicked nations that will rise in revolt against Christ in his return, they also are real. They are a part of a real history. This we affirm. So if we look at this text and we already say, all right, no, that's not true, then we are at odds, one with another. I am affirming this text is real. That everything in it is real. And it cannot be by neat hermeneutics or exegesis rewritten, made unreal, and thrown away out of existence. We cannot do that. That is not the way forward. That is not a time to go in that. We must be more honest than that. Many attempts to get ourselves out of a conundrum is by way of spiritualizing things out of existence. We're out there. We affirm. Corresponding to this idea of its real and actual existence, all the elements of this text, we also, if we affirm that, we therefore also deny this that these essential and concrete aspects of this text can be forced into a strict chronology. This I deny. That if step one is stated here, then it follows that maybe three or four years later, step two will occur. And then, as we look at this text, after we figure out the first maybe three or four years of the return, and then the rapture, then we'll say maybe this takes place now in this text a few other years later. And then it lasts for half a year. Then six months later, this person comes out of the scene. Then another 2,000 years later, or maybe 100 years later, or would it be the thousand years in this text? These are the things I would submit to you, this text is not written in such a way as gives us opportunity to force it into a strict chronology in its development. It is The martyred saints and enthroned saints, Satan's binding, the wicked nations in revolt against our king are not taught. Well, this is a denial, so to say. We deny that they are taught as occurred in historical scenes. I deny it. Hopefully, together, we'll have to wait for So we affirm these things cannot be washed away. It's not even our effort or our desire, and we have no good vested interest in washing them away. What's the point of coming to biblical texts and washing them away? What's the If we just handle our Bibles in that manner, this one's kind of hard. Let's come up with a way to get out of it. Well, then who is God? What is our, our, our hope set on? Us and our ingenuity. If we approach our text of Holy Scripture that way, we just rewrite the whole texts. Don't spiritualize things right out of existence. Oh, I've got, I've got a story for that. It, it works more like this. Well, that doesn't seem to be plain reading. No, that's helpful, isn't it? Not really. Let's just be honest. But yet, if they can be spiritualized away, they can also, in our own desire to have a deep, airtight chart, force them to a sequence we demand. That, that's not fair either. I submit to you this on the chronology. You say, okay, so I understand you're not spiritualizing. 
Yeah, you're not following things historically in a sequence manner either, and I don't know why. It was a great admonition, but the denial is lacking force. Consider with me just for a brief moment the introduction of historical chronology these debates. If you remember at the end of chapter 19, which we'll get back to, I skipped a few notes the very last portion of chapter 19. We'll get back to it at the end of chapter 20. Because those texts are nice. Hopefully I can show you that. But the reason why I would say to you just already as we go forward, why this text definitely, definitely has a conviction, right? You see my emphasis, explanation point, definitely. Cannot be forced into a strict chronology. Because look at the very last two verses of chapter 19. Let's see. If I begin reading verse. Well, I'll take you all the way to verse uh, 18. Why not? To meet the flesh of the kings, here's the supper of God that we briefly covered last week. We'll get back to this text and handle it in its fullness. But I just I want to jump to chapter 20 as it is important for us. But verse 18, we'll come back. To eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, the flesh of how many men? All men. Basically, think there's one category there of basic breakdown. Free and slave. Small and great. Every great man, every small man, every free man, and every slave man, all men. And I saw the beast, the kings of the earth, and their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse against his army. And the beast was captured. Again, we'll get to this and we'll mine it out at another time. And it was a false, and the false prophet who were in his presence had done signs which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of the fire that burns with sulfur. And how many were left? After all of this destruction, how many people are left? Well, if anybody was left after that comment, all slaves, all free, both great and small. If there be anyone left standing, they are called the rest. And the rest, now position Christ, were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on a horse. And all the birds were gorged with the flesh. I ask you already on scripture. Return to war. How many are left standing at the end of China? I don't need to irritate you over this way of reinforcement. What is left standing? No one made it into a So it is, if we, if we force this text, now, now I begin with you this morning, as students of the word, come to receive his word to great benefit of your own soul, and fellowship of the saints. I offer you some sense of way forward in 20, because we both recognize it can't be thrown away with a bunch of neat tricks. And it also cannot be forced into a strict chronology, because that too plays to our desire. Because we recognize at the end of 19, no one is left standing of Jesus. No one's left. No one. Every single person is leaving the world that are in opposition to Christ and return. So why would we at this point then jump into another thousand years of human history where no one is alive? Well, we would. So we recognize also we neither Chapter 18 happened, then chapter 19 happened, now chapter 20 and the first half starts, then after that is completed in human history, the second half of chapter 20 starts, then chapter 21 starts, then chapter 22 starts, and we begin to strictly follow the book at the very first time, which we have yet to do. 
We all of a sudden don't try to come up with a demand that this guy is going to follow the strict history of the Don't no. chapter 19, Buster Burke. Then you're going to be history chapter 1. There is no one left to continue to be history at the end of chapter 19. He then gives us a strict morality for chapter 20. More on that at another time. What was some sense of why now you have this need to some measure of confidence recognizing I would say to you this morning, chapter 20 is now meant to be read in the strict chronology of the So I'm walking a very fine razor's edge, am I not? You're walking it with me. We're not throwing things away. We're not forcing things into contractions and charts. Well, then, if we don't do either one of those, what is it that we can possibly do? I would submit to you this is our pursuit this morning. And we'll hit it with a second. But our purpose at this point is to recognize the place and purpose of the thousand years. Okay, so if it's, if it's not strict chronology, and I see all the mothers, they were with me just a, oh, just a minute ago. Just a minute ago, I had their attention. <laughs> a child. You know, relaxed, So, rather than just Do you wonder why there is a thousand years awaiting at the end of human history? Do you wonder why? That's the question. Why is there a thousand years? If together, you and I, this morning, can get to the heart of that question, why is there a thousand years? Then we can get to the second part. When is the thousand years occurring? If we understand why it occurs at all, that will give us a great context for understanding then. And it's occurring. Because according to why it's occurring, we find out, well, if it's for this purpose, it must serve during this time. And we'll figure out it's here, it's here, it's here, it's here, it's here. Or we'll just spiritualize it right out of the system state again. If we're included in this That's the point. Why is it occurring? Then we can say, according to this, it must be in play at this time. Today, our pursuit, just for a few moments ago, will be to ask the question, if which interpretation is best of this glory of God? Who's standing forth and saying, I think it's strange. It's tied to the other string right here from Acts to Logic. Which one can get to the heart of the glory of God? And it is my persuasion to you, and I trust you with me together, I'm just going to assume you're with me 107% forward. That is whoever or that is whichever interpretation can come to this text point out the purpose and place of the thousand years. Because if we can get to the thousand years, all the other images are going to contribute. They're not going to distract. Cause us to run off on a bunch of weird tangents. We'll be able to figure out all the attending images based on the heart of the place and purpose of the thousand years. That is our pursuit this morning. The purpose and this morning, I said, we will be purpose and place. This morning, we're just going to establish purpose. And then next week, if purpose be right, we'll follow on the place of the thousand years in history. When are they going to occur, or has it occurred, or is it currently occurring? This is how we'll handle this text for us. So, um, let us just follow a simple reading of the text, and then we'll just follow the text where it goes for our next few moments together to establish purpose of the thousand years. Beginning with chapter 21, with our affirmations and denial well in place, I begin reading with you verses 1 through 3 and the following text together. Then, I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit, and a great chain. He sees the dragon that ancient servant, who is the devil, and Satan, and he bound him for a thousand years. And he threw him into the pit, and he shut it, and sealed it over him, so that, 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 that so that, could not be more important. Establishing purpose. 
so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. Coming back, we're going to take three steps in handling this text, I trust, in a manner after Occam's razor. That is, recall, if there are interpretations that are speaking to the same events, on the table in scientific inquiry or biblical inquiry. We're all looking at the same verses. The simplest explanation is this. I trust that you this morning. Myself as well. The simplest. So let's do that. A simple thing. We'll do three things now in this text. Number one, so we have a sense of where we're going. Number one, we're going to identify the angel who is sent. Number one, heaven's messenger. Who is he? Number two, having said you saw him in the text. What is he doing? Who is he? And three, heaven's purpose. Because heaven is at work here. The angel descends from heaven. He finds heaven's enemy. And then heaven has an intended purpose now for him. So let's look at this. We see the, we see so far the angel, or heaven's messenger, who is sent down from God. If you look there, then I saw an angel. Here is heaven's messenger. He is coming down from heaven and he is holding in his hand a key to the bottom of the and a great chain. If I could draw your attention to verse 1, we recognize about heaven's messenger that he is first and foremost to heaven. He is sent by God. This angel in this text, and it is important as we watch angels coming and going throughout the book of Revelation, we recognize here this angel comes in the service and authority of God, bringing with him the instruments of God in order to carry out the mission of God. So he is sent from God, commissioned to do the work of God. He is bearing the instruments of God. And what are those instruments in this text? What he bears with himself? A key and a chain. In order to carry out the mission of God, which is seasoned. So, as we look upon this text, and the angel who is descending, remember first and foremost, he is doing the bidding of God. He is doing the work of God in the authority of God, carrying about in him the instruments of God to accomplish the mission of God. So we see God at work in this scene. An angel doing his bidding on his behalf. There is someone, as has been along with the book of Revelation, a parallel picture and a sense of parallelism is developing throughout the book. This is important for us to go there. Look over in your text to Revelation 9. Go back to chapter 9 because we see this angel who is right here being sent from God in the authority and service of God with the instruments of God to do the mission of God here in this text. There is also, Revelation 9, an angel who likewise came from heaven in Revelation 9. However, you notice that he was not as this angel is sent from heaven. In Revelation 9, you see there is a clear difference about this angel. Notice back in Revelation 9, we begin with you in verse 1. We'll have two angels emerging, the one in Revelation 20 and the one in Revelation 9. The fifth angel blew his trumpet, and I saw a star falling from heaven to the earth. And he was given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. Didn't we just see this? Wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. We just saw an angel being sent from heaven with the key to the bottomless pit. And now we're looking at Revelation 9 and we're seeing there is a, a, another angel who is coming down from heaven with the key to the bottomless pit. Wait, no, we've made an error. This angel of Revelation 9 was. Did you see the clear distinction between the two? The angel of Revelation 9 is not the same. Do you see it? He is fallen from heaven. 
critical distinction. <coughs> Fallout. And indeed, he is vested also with the authority of God in some manner, isn't he? Do you see that in the passage? Look at as he is fallen from heaven to the earth. Not that he was sent from heaven to the earth. He was fallen. And he also, however, in the Revelation 20, we said an angel coming from in the authority of and was given the instruments of this angel was cast down or he has been thrown out and fallen from heaven. And he also, however, like Revelation 20, was given a key to any given keys to the shack of bottomless pit. Who has the authority to give out the keys? God has the key. As the Lord has risen Christ, Revelation 5, he alone has sovereign right over all that is created to dispense of keys. That is access, authority of any. So it is this one angel or this star in the presence of heaven who was fallen from heaven, and yet he was also vested with authority, a key to the bottomless pit. So it is. Who is this star with this authority? Look over as he's further described. Verse 11, in his origins, this is where we're first learning of this, this angel. Verse 11 of chapter 9. They, we'll get back to who they is in just a brief moment, but we're just establishing the origins of this other angel. We see so far he has fallen. And then in verse 11 we find out more about him. They have as king over them the angel of the bottomless pit. So he, he reigns over something. He has authority over someone. And yet it is this angel or this star, this angel fallen from heaven. He is the angel over the bottomless pit. His name in Hebrew is Abaddon, and in Greek, he is called Apollyon. I cited for you about two years ago when we were in Revelation 9. This term here, uh, Apollyon, here is simply the term for destroyer. So now we're finding out more about this angel, aren't we? We're finding out more about his origins and identity. Where did this angel come from? came from heaven. How did he get here? He is fallen from heaven. He is not with God's authority, in the instruments of God, doing the mission of God. He has been cast from God to the earth. He is vested with authority. What kind of authority? He takes those keys that he has given in verse 1, and he does a dastardly deed, does he not? By verse 2, he is opening this bottomless shaft, or this bottomless pit, and look at the activity that flows. He opened the shaft of the bottomless pit, this angel cast down from the shaft rose smoke, like smoke of a great furnace. The sun and the air were darkened with the smoke of the shaft. Then from the smoke came locusts. It came upon the earth. And they were given power, like that of almost scorpions of the earth. They were told in their work, following the authority of this angel, not to harm the grass of the earth. Or Look at the nastiness. They harm those people who do not have the seal of God. Then look at the rest of the passage of verse 5. They were allowed, this is again, by vested authority from the angel, that it is God who gave this fallen angel this level of authority. They're listening to him. He, this fallen star, is their king. He, the destroyer, he rules over them. And that they were, in his own authority, verse 5, allowed to torment people for five months, but not kill them. And their torment was like the torment of the scorpion that stinks. And in those days, people would see death. They will not die. They will long die. But death will flee. This is the work of the angel who has fallen from heaven. His origins, he's cast out from heaven. His activity is to do two things. As you see very clearly in the text, there's no trickery here. He has authority to do two things. Torment everyone who's in that room. And persecute the church. This is 
work of the destroyer. It has even been vested authority in his minions to do the work of destroying. To steal that sense of purpose from a person's soul. To steal that sense of power and tell them to whisper in their ear, there is no These people under this level of torment will not, they will seek death. But he was defeated 
It's a similar picture of Revelation 9. When he was defeated, there was no longer any place for them in heaven. They fell. And the great dragon was thrown down. Same picture. Fallen. Cast. And now look at the language. He is a dragon. Verse 9. The ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan. He's the deceiver of the whole world. Wait a minute, you just read Revelation verse 9, 12, 9, if you did it, you just read it and you just saw something incredibly important. In a moment you recognize he just described him the exact same way he's describing him in Revelation 20. Exactly. Right? He's a dragon. He's a serpent. That ancient serpent known as the devil and Satan. Wait a minute, that is the exact same verbiage of what I just read at the beginning in Revelation 20. Are these two pictures being linked? Is the picture of him who has fallen to being now identified as Satan? Are these two pictures linked together in the one word of the Lord Jesus Christ? Did Satan fall from heaven in a very definitive manner? And Jesus was caught up after the resurrection and thrown, according to Revelation 12. Jesus laid down his life for his Lord, right? For his people. To take his life up again in the resurrection, to be exalted to the right hand of the Father. And in that definitive victory of the Lord Jesus Christ, Satan. with you to but I think right here I'm, I'm about to close the jar it, it, I, I can see it in your eyes I hope to do that with Luke 10 this is the final picture its origins his activity and his identity turn with me to Luke chapter 10 just briefly for a moment I won't preach the whole text I'll simply look at it with you but the way to finally catch our thoughts of when this definitive Casting down from the star of heaven, he who fell from heaven with the war of Michael and his angels is clearly in coordination with the work, ministry, life, death, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
This is how Jesus, and we'll look more at this next week, but this is how Jesus characterizes his own ministry. Look in chapter 10, beginning with verse 17. The 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall on the light from heaven. So I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy. Now, big shot. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, in this thought of triumphing over the enemy, having even Satan subject to the authority of my name. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this. That the spirits are subject to you. But rejoice that your names are written in heaven. If it is his origins in Revelation 9, he has fallen out of heaven. If it is a clear picture in Revelation 12 that we're speaking of the event of Satan's fall, and it is that Satan fell in this picture in Revelation 12, and we know Revelation 12 took place in the ministry of Jesus. And we're starting to find the books of the I recognize that sometimes it's not. It is in coordination with Jesus. Which is about to really help us understand his purpose. Jesus said in his own ministry, I saw Satan fall. We'll look a little bit more next week in the Gospel of Ministry, but we see that Christ says, A man will plunder at another man's house only when he will. This is the word of Christ. How so can I show that in our last few moments, that at this moment together in our text, if I have not completely twisted you up into the Gordian knot, and your eyes are beginning to slowly cross? Or my thinking of how is the easiest, most successful piece of this morning discussion to follow the sense this morning. I know I bear the burden with you. This is a difficult text. These are difficult concepts. I'm looking at some technology. Trust the Lord strengthening in our last few moments together to recognize some of the great truths that emerge as we now establish the purpose of the thousand years. We have a little window into heaven's messenger. He has come. He has come with We know that it's Satan. Now that it's Revelation 24, it's a little bit because we saw these same events being told in Revelation 9. We saw the same event taking place in Revelation 12 in the ministry of war. And we saw it in the Lord's own words in Luke 10. That it took place right now. I saw, through my authority in my ministry on earth, Satan fall like lightning to the earth. So it is now united with the Lord's ministry. This is giving us the Purpose, I would submit to you, for the thousand years. What is its purpose? It is to display the supremacy of Christ through the proclamation of the gospel. It is to, it is to display the supremacy of Christ through the power of the gospel. Whereby in this proclamation of the supremacy of Christ through the gospel, Satan is bound. How is it that he is bound? How is it that he is bound? He is bound through the proclamation of the gospel by lacking effectual power. He said to me, wait a minute. I heard in the rest of the New Testament. Maybe you didn't know about these verses. Speak about Satan walking about his glory mind. And say that he is bound. I'm bound. Well, that's what works out there. Another text that speaks the words how it is that he seeks to tempt, how it is that he seeks to destroy yet still, how it is that he seeks to torment yet even more so. You're saying here that he's bound. That this picture of the angel who descends is grabbing the dragon by the tail and he is binding, throwing him in the pit. 
shutting it, sealing it for 1,000 years. Yet the rest of the New Testament saying to me is, walking about, Peter himself said, as a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. How is it the same thing as we at this time? Because we recognize the binding of sin. No one tells us that we no longer can have it. No longer tells us that we cannot run about and seek to get about it. Let me point that out to you here in this text. If you're with me, notice the work and the purpose of the money in verse 3. The binding is specifically expressed. He bound them for a thousand years, he threw them into the pit. You know that term there, throw, is the same term in Revelation 12, where he was cast. He is cast for his throne. These pictures are being the same. He is thrown into the pit. He is shut it over him. He sealed it over him. So he can't tempt anyone. So he can't persecute the church. So he cannot torment men. No. So that he cannot deceive the nations any longer. What is his work of deception? Look at the rest of the verse for everything. Until the thousand years are ended. After this thousand year period, he will be released for a little while. Look at verse 7. When the thousand years are ended, this is where we pick back up with this picture. Satan will be released from the prison. He will come out and do what he has been restricted from doing for a thousand years. Deceiving the nations. Never at the four corners of the earth. God and Nathan. And this deception will specifically do what? It will gather the nations for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. They're marched up over the broad plain of the earth, surrounding the camp of the saints, the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil, who had deceived them, this work of deception, how? To gather them for war against the Lamb. And the beloved city, the final work of his efforts to thwart the Lordship of Christ. He will be then grabbed, he will then be thrown into the lake of fire and salt over the beast and the false prophets were. They will be tormented day and night, forever and ever. I said to you the purpose of the millennium, the purpose of this body, is to prevent Satan's deception. Specifically, the deception of epic proportions to gather the nations from war. You see, what, what, what we do when we come to Revelation 20 we say Satan is bound for a thousand years. We know that must be in the future because we know he's not bound today. I yell at my wife. I yell at my kids. I compromise my integrity. I so on and so forth. We know these things about our temptations, about our sin. And we know that Satan is at work. And we know the force of the Testament tells us we're in spiritual warfare. Therefore, we say to this text, he cannot be bound. And yet we find out what we have found in the Bible. a critical error in the passage. We have taken what John clearly restricts and we have been persuaded. Isn't there a restriction placed upon Satan's binding? How, why is he bound? The purpose falls down, so that he cannot deceive the nations for war. And then finally, tell the old hero of the land and his sins. It is as if Satan is bound in preventing, preventing our end. We cannot come to the binding of Satan and universalize it and say, therefore, he must not be at work in any way whatsoever. We are then universalizing or absolutizing what John specifically describes. He is bound so that he cannot deceive the nations of the world. 
does see the nations. According to this passage, they will gather for war against the land and the time. This, this is the purpose of the millennium. So he has found that he cannot bring about a premature end of redemptive history. What's the purpose of that? Why not? Why, why can't he just right now perform that last desperate redeem? Why can't just gather the nations for war against the land. Why has God stained his authority in an absolute manner, sealing it, shutting up over it, stopping him, binding him with a chain, as it were, so that he cannot perform this final fight against the land and the church? Why? Why are we waiting now? Why don't they just allow it now? Remove the chain, cut its cords, release him from the abyss. Why? Right, that's what's... You're dying to have this answer, aren't you? Why not? For the supremacy of Christ's name, for the proclamation of the gospel, and the gathering of his people, that is his reward. This is actually probably the best text for us to preach at a mission time. Father, I thank you for this time. I pray.